Now, being brought up in a Baptist church, where every week we would hear testimonies from people as to how they came to know Jesus, I was always rather envious of those who had found God in dramatic circumstances. Their stories were always so much more interesting than mine. Brought up in a Christian home, I first heard the old, old story as though it was being spoken just to me at the age of 10. The incredible story of grace laying its arm down a beam and reaching out for me. I hadn't been a Hells Angel or a member of the IRA. Those testimonies remain memorable. I was just a little girl who had the privilege of being brought up in love, safety, and security. Admittedly, I had the propensity for naughtiness, not always truthful, often unkind. I still cringe at the thought of the Smurfs I once stole from another child's bedroom. <laughs> Please don't laugh. It's made me feel physically sick just revisiting that memory. And so when I heard with my childlike ears that Jesus died for my sins, I understood. Because even at an early age, I felt the pull and the power of them. Rachel Held Evans writes in her beautiful book, Searching for Sunday, of how she is a Christian. Because Christianity names and addresses sin. It acknowledges the reality that the evil we observe in the world is also present within ourselves. It tells the truth about the human condition, that we're not okay. I was 11 years old when I got baptized, and in celebration of the occasion, my parents gave me a Bible that they'd inscribed with the words um, that are found in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God. They felt that these words would stand me in good stead for the rest of my life. In the beginning, God. For me, they were life-giving, hopeful, inspiring, challenging words that have been profoundly important to my life. In the beginning, God. Four words to me that were the opening of a story. The grand narrative that swamped me in its enormity but invited me to add my life to its words, its sentences, its paragraphs, and its chapters. The author, Isaac Dinerson, often cited as one of the greatest storytellers of our time, wrote of how to be a person is to have a story to tell. I've always liked the idea that our lives are essentially lived out stories. The great Doctor Who, in the form of Matt Smith, affirmed this idea too. We're all stories in the end, he told Amy Pond. Just make it a good one. I hope you like the breadth of my quotes there. From out of Africa to a TARDIS. I'd like to, you know, include everybody. Stories are incredibly powerful. They are the main ways in which we learn almost everything that we do about life. Story is a language that humanity has always responded to. You see, we were created by a storytelling God who has spoken to us through narrative after narrative in the Bible. The first words spoken into the cold expanse of the cosmos. 
or words that are meant to reassure. In the beginning, it's all story. We live in narrative. The epic of existence is his story. And it is his story. And his story has always been about saving lives. Around us, within us, behind us and before us, the greatest story that you will ever hear and ever know is being told. And this story that we're looking at this morning from Exodus 14 is absolutely intrinsic to it. Now, I've absolutely no doubt that most of you will know that the Exodus story is foundational to Israel's history. I'm sure you've been hearing that week after week over these last few weeks. It's been carried throughout Jewish history, and it's been held with the greatest care and remembrance, retold every year around dinner tables at the festival of the Passover, preached in synagogues, prayed about in prayers morning and evening, and whispered as words of comfort in concentration camps. Our reading today has held the power of hope throughout history to those who felt the shackles of oppression, probably most famously through the sermons and speeches of Dr. Martin Luther King. In evangelical theology, we've been somewhat dismissive of times of those who've chosen to see this story as one that speaks of physical, political, and social liberation. We've put names to their ways of talking about God. Black theology, liberation theology, feminist theology. Whereas those who find ourselves within the predominantly white evangelical arena have theology. What we all have is a story, a rescue story, a love story, a kingdom story. And I wonder if this morning, if it's a story being preached in the corrugated, iron-roofed, cardboard-walled church set in the jungles of Calais. Because this is a story that cries freedom for the captives and release for the oppressed. A story for all humanity that tells of a God who made us, who loves us and longs for us to be set free so that we can serve him. A story that actually became ours from Abraham to Ruth, Moses to Jesus, because of refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants and economic migrants. And so, Pete, so helpfully, Pete Gregg tweeted earlier this week. Above all, it's a story that is going to ask us simply to believe. So with that in mind, let's turn to our Bibles and let's just look at the opening verses that we've just heard. Verse 15, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians that they will go after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. 
Now, for those of you who were here last week, you will recognize that our story of the Israelites' escape from Egypt ended on a bit of a cliffhanger worthy of any Nordic noir thriller. Camped alongside the Red Sea, possibly breathing a sigh of relief and daring to hold a modicum of belief that their captivity may really be over, the Israelites looked up to see 600-plus Egyptian chariots and all of Pharaoh's troops on horseback heading towards them, and they are utterly terrified. Where they were camped meant they were sitting ducks. They were surrounded. Behind them, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's army, Pharaoh's army, Pharaoh's army was charging towards them, and in front of them, the sea stretched for miles. There was absolutely no escape. And to put it bluntly, they absolutely freaked, completely lost it. We read that they cried out to the Lord, that's a good thing, but then they chewed Moses' ear off by telling him that um, he had done a terrible thing bringing them out of Egypt, that he should have left them there. They would actually have preferred to stay working for Pharaoh rather than dying in the desert. And so we ended the story last week with Moses encouraging the people to calm down well, actually telling them to be quiet and trust that God actually had everything in hand. Already at this point in the Israelite story, Moses will be realizing that it's very costly to lead people out of captivity. He will be sensing that freedom is not going to come easily. As Nelson Mandela once said, it is a long road. So we left Moses on a bit of an impatient note last week and this week, we sense some exasperation in God's tone to Moses when he asks him why he's crying out. For goodness sake, you can almost imagine God thinking, I've spoken through burning bushes, I've turned staffs to snakes, actually, I've turned staffs to sea monsters, I've sent plagues on Egyptians, and I have just led you miraculously out of Egypt with a cloud during the day and a fire by night, and still you doubt me. Still, you fear Pharaoh more than me. God goes on to tell Moses that everything that is happening is his plan. He makes it clear that absolutely nothing that is happening is outside of his control. In fact, it's part of the rescue story. The last-ditch attempt of Pharaoh to exert his power over Israel will serve as God's final word to the Egyptians and to the Israelites as to who is in control. All that the Israelites needed to do was move on, to take a step forward in belief. Over the summer, I read the story of the charity Mary's Meals um, in the book called The Shed That Fed a Million Children. Anybody read it? Super book, well worth reading. It's written by Mary's Meals founder, Magnus McFarlane Barrow, and it's a really, really inspiring read. Near to the beginning of the book, Magnus writes of how the entrepreneur, Duncan Bannatyne, agreed to fund one of Mary's Meals projects, um, a children's home in Romania. And he asked um, Magnus to take him to Romania to visit the home when it was completed. So in 2001, Duncan and Magnus went to Romania to see the home that he had funded, and they took with them a nun called Sister Martha. 
Magnus writes of how Duncan was really interested in Sister Martha and would frequently quiz her about her faith and her lifestyle and that conversation was really quite lively between the two of them. The highlight of the visit, though, was the opening of Ballantyne House, which was to become a home for girls who'd previously um, been housed in terrible conditions in hospitals. Duncan told Magnus after the opening that it was one of the happiest days of his life. And over a celebratory lunch, they chatted away quietly for a while until suddenly Magnus noticed that Duncan had slipped away to sit by himself behind the house. When he finally returned, it looked as though he'd been crying. He seemed to be struggling for words and he was finally able to articulate to Magnus that he'd just had an experience of God. God wanted me to become like you lot, he said to Magnus. God gave me a choice. I decided no, and then he left me. But I can't do it. I can't give it all up. Very gently, Duncan was told that God didn't want to take things away from him. He wanted to give him something. And Magnus writes of how to this day, he and Duncan remain close friends. And still he prays that Duncan will accept God's gift. I found this story really moving. Just as the Israelites have shown us, it is possible to come face to face with the living God and still not quite believe or understand the story that God is inviting us into. I wonder if any of you here this morning have come face to face with the living God, that you know that you've heard him talking to you and drawing you to him, but you've decided not to respond or not to answer the call, or maybe very definitely, like Duncan, you've said no. Sometimes maybe it is hard to understand the story that we've been invited into. I think sometimes actually, as the church, we've not been terribly good at communicating it always over the years. When I first became a Christian, I have to admit, it took me quite a long time to understand fully the story that it was that I'd stepped into. It took me a while to realize that this story that I'd said yes to wasn't simply a guarantee of a happy afterlife. Hell and damnation had been the focus of many sermons of my youth and my basic understanding for a while of Jesus' death was yes, that it saved me from my sins, but ultimately it was that it saved me from eternal damnation. And while I absolutely agree that that is true, absolutely, categorically believe that that is true, it is far from the whole truth. When Jesus was hung on a Roman cross and that cross was stood up in the ground, a new kingdom was born and a new king was crowned. When three days later Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection declared to a beaten and broken world that absolutely nothing was going to be the same again. A new day had dawned. Life was never going to be the same again. Evil, death 
and sin had been defeated. And this fact was going to start taking an impact now, not in some future time and in some future place. Tom Wright writes of how the point about the Christian faith is that we are lost and we need someone to come and find us. We are stuck in the quicksand waiting to be rescued. We are dying in need of new life. God's story has always been a rescue story, not a moral conduct story, nor a moral example story, nor a get out of hell when we die card story, but a rescue operation that has been put into effect once and for all. A great door that is open in the cosmos that can never be shut again. It's the door to the prison that we've been kept chained up. It's the offer of freedom that beckons us into a new world of justice, of freedom, of relationship and beauty. A world that is not just ours to enjoy, but also ours to work in, bringing to birth on earth as well as in heaven. It's a story that was being acted in miniature on the seashore as God waited for the Israelites to take a step forward in belief. But before the action of the story moves on, we have two quite unusual verses. If you just take a look at verses 19 and 20. It says here that then the angel of the Lord who'd been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. These two verses, to me, were almost like an interlude in the story, a bit of a pause button. Having just told Moses how the Israelites are going to be rescued from the Egyptians, God then calls a halt to the plan and makes them all wait an entire night. We read that he places an angel and the pillar of cloud between the Egyptians and the Israelites so that neither of them can see each other. For the Egyptians, this must have been somewhat unnerving as the cloud plunged them into total darkness and surely this must have reminded them of the ninth plague when Egypt was totally dark for three days. The tenth plague that followed the darkness was the death of their firstborn sons. Was God using this night to give them time to consider turning back? Was he warning them that death lay ahead? Was he giving them an opportunity to turn round? For the Israelites, though, this night must have been one of great reassurance. They were absolutely bathed in God's light and they were surrounded by his presence. Was this night to them a gift from God that would still their fears and calm their anxieties? Could they hear the echoes of another kingdom calling them on? Was this the pause that they needed to truly believe did it give them space to remember all that God had done? 
Before we move on from this interlude, I would just like us to stop and pause and take our minds to a modern day shoreline where 5,000 people are living in the jungle refugee camps of Calais, all hoping to find their way to the UK. As I've prepared this talk this week, they've very much been on my mind. Giles Fraser wrote in The Guardian of how what we are witnessing is a 21st century exodus. Like the Israelites in our story, people from Eritrea, Syria, Sudan, Iraq, Iran, Ethiopia have all endured years of hardship that have fueled the courage to step into long, desperate journeys in search of freedom. We know some of their stories. They've been reported for months and months of overcrowded boatloads of people trying to make their way to Europe's shores. We've heard of unscrupulous traffickers hoarding people into the back of lorries for money that they can ill afford and with no care for their safety. We've been hearing the stories of Syria's wars for the past um, four long years. And we've been horrified by the stories of ISIS's reign of abject terror in Syria and Iraq. Just this April, a group of Ethiopian Christians en route from Addis Ababa via Libya were caught by, IS, by ISIS militants and beheaded on the beach. According to their families, some of them were hoping to come to the UK. It would seem that the voices that are shouting the loudest within our media are those who are saying that we wouldn't have let them in. But in the light of the Exodus story, and in the light of God's rescue story of us, how should the Church of the UK be speaking into this situation? God makes it clear in his punishment of Egypt that he's greatly angered by those who would enslave and oppress. How do we live out in the here and now that we believe that a kingdom of justice and mercy was established on a hill called Golgotha, and its king is one that calls everyone who thirsts to come to the waters, and everyone who has no money to come and buy and eat. Everyone, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul might live. If we are witnessing a 21st century exodus, how should we, as 21st century Christ followers, respond? In this pause, in this quiet, I pray that those people may know the enveloping presence of God, that a pillar of cloud will surround them and engulf them in the light of his hope and peace. I pray that they, like the Israelites, will be reassured that God will lead them to freedom. And I ask that God will give us the wisdom to know how to play our part. Let's just turn to our last verses, 21 and 22, where we see finally Moses stretching out his hand over the sea. And we read of how all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into a dry land. 
The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. If anybody had been in doubt whether they were Egyptian or Israelite about who was in control, God's parting of the Red Sea would have left them in no doubt. The writer of Exodus reminds us of the story of Genesis 1 when he talks of winds blowing and seas parting. He's making the point that the God who made the world and put the seas in their place was the God who was dividing them to let his people go free. And as the Israelites walk through the Red Sea, the pathway just does not just deliver them from slavery, but it also begins to form them as a people and a nation. By the time that they reach the new shoreline, they will have begun a new story, a story that God had always intended, that through them, the world would come to know him. Ultimately, this story of the Red Sea and its parting is a story that foretells Jesus. There is so much theology contained in those um, couple of verses, and um, maybe Dave will, will introduce some of that tonight. Um, so much theology, and it's absolutely imperative that we see the story of the Red Sea as foretelling Jesus. I just had a sense that rather than explore some of the theology today, that I was just simply to talk about Jesus and just literally in these final minutes I don't know whether there is anybody in this room today like Duncan Bannatyne who has said no to God but while I've been writing this talk I've sensed the fact that he's still asking and he's still saying step out come on follow me I also wondered as well whether there's some of us here who may never really have experienced the freedom that Jesus brings, that maybe, like me, you'd always understood the story absolutely correctly as, um, you know, a, a, as a story that will save you from eternal damnation and a story that saves you from your sins, but you've perhaps never quite understand, understood the life in the here and now aspect as well as the life to come. And I wonder tonight, to this morning, if you would just hear about Jesus. Because he's the one who's opened up to us the way to freedom. The one who tells us that he has water to quench our thirst, bread to feed our hunger, light to shine in our darkness. He's the one who describes himself as shepherd and he seeks for us until he finds us and he carries us home in his arms. He's the one who loves us, who allowed himself to be nailed to a tree for us so that we could lay all our burdens down. The one who offers us forgiveness as wide as the sea. For the seas to part so that the Israelites could pass through, it simply took them to make one decisive step forward. It didn't need them to stop their grumbling and moaning. There was no need for them to be perfectly faith-filled for God to act. 
They just simply had to step into the sea. And it's the same for us. Jesus wants us to make a step towards him. We might feel that in order to do that, we need to put on our Sunday best and probably possibly modify our behavior or change something massive about us. But Jesus says, just come as you are. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, because in me you will find rest. This morning we're going to gather around the communion table, a place where we remember the stories of our salvation, the place where we remember Jesus. Maybe around the table this morning, you'll remember that this is a story that you are intrinsically part of. Maybe around that table, you can think what it means to live in the light of God's rescue story when the cries of the oppressed and those longing for freedom are all around us. Maybe around this table, this morning, you can say for the first time, I believe. I'll just end with lovely words of a song from Damien McRice called Trusty and True. If all that you are is not all you desire, then come. Come alone. Come with friends. Come with foes. Come however you are. Just come.